Well, good morning, Convergent Church. As always, it's an absolute pleasure to gather with you for worship. Uh, and I've got to say, as much as I love Michigan summers, I'm excited to be entering into a new season together. I know that during the summer, most of us were here, there, and everywhere. That includes myself. But here in these first couple of weeks of September, man, it feels like a regathering. It feels like the family's back together. And man, I'm just excited for this. We've got some exciting things coming in the, in the next few months, but maybe this is your first time here. And if that's you, allow me to welcome you. We're excited to have you with us this morning. My name is Dan, and I'm one of the pastors here. We're absolutely thrilled to have you with us. And if you don't know much about us, we're a really simple group. We're an a gathering of ordinary people with real struggles who experience real loss, who succumb to real sin but believe in an extraordinary God who sent his son Jesus to bear all of our burdens, to make us whole, to heal us, and to forgive us of all of our sin. Convergent Church is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but we believe that God won't leave us that way. He is at work making all things new, beginning with each of our hearts and then extending out and into this community. And this morning, we're going to be continuing in our new sermon series through the book of Jonah, which we've titled God's Heart and Our Part. So if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead uh, and begin turning there to Jonah chapter one. If you don't have a Bible, it will be on the screen behind me. And the question I would like to begin with this morning is this, where do you run when life gets hard. When life gets hard, what do you do? Who or what do you turn to for refuge? Where do you run when life gets hard? When I was a kid, I didn't get in trouble too much, at least not compared to other people in my life, I'd say. But when I did, I would usually run to my dad. It wasn't always easy but I knew that he would hear me. I knew that he was reasonable. While I knew I'd be held accountable for my actions, I also knew that he would advocate for me. I remember one time in particular, I was a student at Central Elementary, which is right up the street here. I think I was seven years old, uh, so that probably would have put me around second grade. Uh, and, and the playground at this time was covered in all these little pebbles, right? Now, a lot of playgrounds, like they had wood chips for a while, and I think now most of them are like these little recycled rubber bits. Um, but when I was a kid, it was, it was rocks. And I mean, I think, do you ever get one of those in your, in your shoe? Like if you want evidence that the fall of man is real, just put one of those rocks in your shoe and like it'll, it'll cripple you. It'll bring you right to your knees. Uh, it, was, it was miserable. But the year was 1999. One of me and my degenerate friends were at recess and we were grabbing handfuls of these stones, and we were just like throwing them up in the air. I don't know why. I don't know why kids do the things that they do, but that's what we were doing. But some little narc ran inside <laughs> and reported us to the recess police. This recess narc didn't just say we were throwing them in the air, but it, it alleged that we were throwing them at moving traffic. One of the school administrators pulled us aside and informed us that uh, in a few days we would have detention, me and my degenerate friend. I remember it just being so downcast, so downtrodden, because the day that they told me I had detention was the same day that my dad was supposed to be taking me to the old Tiger Stadium 
for a Tigers baseball game. And I think they only had, they had less than 10 games less in that stadium before they were gonna be done with it, build Comerica Park, tear the old one down. And so I was absolutely downcast. However, when I got home from school, the first thing I did was I ran and I told my dad. I told him what happened. I confessed my own stupidity. I told him what had happened. I pleaded my case. He talked to the administrator and subsequently pulled me out of school and still took me to the Tigers game. (laughs) Um, When I got back the day after the game, my friend who I presumed would have still had detention said, man, I don't know what your dad said, but I didn't have detention either. Now, throughout the years, it wasn't always such silly things like this, and I didn't always get off the hook. On the contrary, actually, I'm pretty sure that I was probably spanked more than any of my other siblings, but if you could spank adults, I think some of them probably would have had me beat. Um, But here's the thing. I knew that my dad would advocate for me, you know? And while a lot of times when I would confess things to my dad, confess my sin, confess my, my struggles, my wanting to quit something, he would, he would make me push through and there would be this endurance to build character in me. But I knew that whatever the complexity, whatever the sin, whatever the trial, he would always be quick to listen and, and help me best navigate the path forward. And he still does. Now, before we jump into Jonah 1, 4 through 16, allow me to give a little refresher for anyone who may not have been with us last week or those who, who struggled to retain information but were here last week like me. So Pastor Jameson did an incredible job uh, of expositing Jonah 1, 1 through 3, showing us Jonah, showing us ourselves, and then showing us Jesus, the true and better Jonah. And in that text, we're introduced to the author of the book, Jonah. We learned his occupation, He was a prophet of God. And in the Old Testament, a prophet was someone who was used by God to communicate a message, a particular message to a particular people. Most often this was a foretelling of the judgment to come if they didn't repent from their wicked ways. And it wasn't an easy job, right? No one wants to be the bearer of bad news. But in many cases, this is precisely what God called these men to do. But know that for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. Just hold on to that. And we also learned about the new, Lord, the new word that the Lord had given to Jonah and the new people he was calling Jonah to minister to. God saw the evil works of the Ninevites. He said it had come up before him and he was calling Jonah to go and speak judgment to them and to call them to repentance. Now, many of the prophets throughout the Old Testament were speaking to their own people, the Israelites. But this time, God was calling Jonah to go to the enemy, to a pagan nation, But instead of being obedient to God's word, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, the exact opposite direction of where God had told him to go. But even worse, he boarded a trip to Tarshish, and it says that he did so to flee the presence of the Lord. And on this ship is where the story will pick back up for for us this morning. Our text this morning has one main point, and it is this. You can't run from God. Well, you can try, I guess, but as we'll see here, you can't escape him. It's futile. As the, as the old adage goes, right, you can run, but you can't hide. So without further ado, let's, let's jump into Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 4, where we read, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Jonah thought that he could flee from the word and from the presence of the Lord. But as it would turn out, God is omnipresent and sovereign 
over all things. And that includes the wind and the seas. Again, it says here that the Lord, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Who hurled it? The Lord. (laughs) Take special note that the text doesn't merely say that a great storm had come upon them, but that God himself made a storm. He willed it. He initiated it. He executed it. And not just any storm, but we see here that it's a mighty tempest. We're talking like a tropical storm or a hurricane. Here we see the infinite power of God on full display. He not only created the heavens and the earth, he is presently ruling and reigning over all of his creation. No one and no thing is autonomous of God's sovereignty. And this story of Jonah is a prime example of that. When Jonah attempts to flee, God commands the wind concerning him. Infinite in power, sovereign without end. But sadly, I'm afraid that many, even those of us in the Christian church, have yet to grasp the magnitude of this. Hear me out. While we attribute praise to God and his control when everything is going well, do we not also question his existence, his power, and his goodness when life gets hard? We live in duplicity. We are a double-minded people. On the one hand, we pray, believing that God in his sovereignty can control all things, right? He can heal our sick bodies. He can save lost souls. He can mend broken hearts. But what about when he doesn't? What do you say then? What do you believe then? Who do you believe is in control then? Consider these verses, Isaiah 45, 7. God says, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all of these things. Or Romans eleven thirty six, 36, where we read that, for from him, God, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. In Romans 8, 28, it says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, I've shown you all this to make the point that God is sovereignly in control of all things, the light and the dark, the prosperity and the calamity. He is in control of it all. But get this. He's working all of these things together for his glory and for your good. So when life is hard, you can have confidence that God is not MIA. He hasn't lost control to Satan or to the powers of darkness. He's actually using it all to produce something good in you for his glory. Take heart in this reality. There's absolutely nothing that you will face in this life that hasn't passed through the hands of a sovereign and loving God who is using it for your good even when you can't fathom it in the moment, even when you can't see any good at all. And as the story of Jonah continues to unfold, we'll see this with increased clarity. But for now, here in Jonah 1-4, we see God in the midst of the storm, sovereignly in control. And the same is true for you this morning. I don't know what you came through those doors with, but God is in the midst of, of your storm. The question then is this, what will your response be? 
Let's continue reading here in Jonah 1 to see the response of the people on Jonah's ship in the midst of the storm. Verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. So Jonah is on the run. God casts a hurricane upon the sea coming after him. The ship is on the verge of breaking up. And these Gentile, these non-Jewish pagan sailors are absolutely terrified. And this is really saying because these are men who have spent their lives and made their livelihood at sea, right? They've undoubtedly faced their fair share of storms at sea, but this one was different. The Hebrew word that's used for afraid here is the same verse that we see first used in scripture in Genesis 3.10. Sin had just entered the world. Adam and Eve tried to flee from God, but God pursues them and inquires of them, where are you? To which Adam replied, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. These sailors had that kind of fear and that tracks because what do we see each one of them doing? It says that they start crying out to their false gods that they worship. They started praying. But who's in control of the storm? The one true God. And their prayers were powerless because they were praying to gods who had no power. So what do they do then? Right? They begin taking all the cargo that's on the ship and hurling it overboard. They were so afraid for their lives, so riddled with fear, that in desperation they began throwing their cargo, their livelihood, their possessions overboard. After all, if they die, right, they have no use for any of those things anyways. This was a mayday, mayday situation. But wait, where's Jonah? Where's Jonah in the mix of all this? Let's read verse five again. The mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. Now, based on the phrasing here, I don't think this is like the story of Jesus and his disciples that we see in Matthew 8. There we see this account of Jesus and his disciples at sea. Jesus lays down, Jesus falls asleep, and then a, a raging storm comes upon him and fear the disciples awake Jesus and he commands a storm and it ceases. Now, here... This mighty storm comes upon them and everyone begins praying to their God, but Jonah. Everyone prays to their God except Jonah. That's how it reads. Then everyone is hurling their cargo overboard, but Jonah. When the storm came, Jonah sought escape. Jonah sought escape from his present reality. Instead of crying out to the one true God who is sovereign over all, instead of helping even lighten the load of the ship, Jonah retreated to the inmost part of the ship. He descends to its greatest depths, and there he sleeps. Instead of doing something, literally anything productive, he sought a futile, immediate gratification. Now, as easy as it is for us to read encounters like this in the Bible and go, ah, what are you doing, Jonah? Don't you know that you're only making things worse for yourself, Jonah? Can't you see that you're only prolonging your suffering, Jonah? We can look at that and we can say that, but the reality is this. I am Jonah. I am. And so are you. You are Jonah. So the question then is, when the storms of life wage war against you, what do you do? 
What do you do when the storms of life wage war against you? Though we can have confidence that our God is at work in the midst of every storm, because we see it here in the book of Jonah. If we're honest with ourselves, like Jonah, we most often seek escape instead of rescue. Think about it. Rescue takes time. It takes patience. It often requires long suffering. In any situation, whether you're, you're shipwrecked at sea waiting for the Coast Guard or you're in a fender bender in downtown Flint and waiting for the police to arrive on the scene, it takes time. You may actually wait longer in downtown Flint for a police officer to come, though, uh, than you would for the Coast Guard when you're in the midst of a storm. If you've ever been in downtown Flint or if you've ever had an accident, I've got a story, but we'll save that for another time. Um, rescue takes time, whereas escape yields immediate gratification, momentary as it may be, counterproductive as it may be. There's no doubt in my mind that there must have been great anguish and anxiety within Jonah over not only disregarding the word of the Lord, but actively seeking to flee from his presence. To not only say, uh, I'm not going to go do what you told me, but to get on a boat and say, I'm going to go the exact opposite way. I'm going to go the exact opposite way. Instead of prostrating himself before the Lord, instead of humbling himself before God, he opted to escape reality, to sleep, to procrastinate, to delay the inevitable. If you've ever struggled with anxiety or depression, you know that temptation to shut down, to sleep when the darkness will not lift. I know that feeling. But has that rest ever brought the deliverance that you longed for? Or does it only bring relief for a moment and then the darkness continues to loom? Or maybe you're not depressed. Maybe you don't seek your escape and sleep. But when life gets hard, do you find comfort in the form of a bottle and drink till you feel numb? Has that ever brought deliverance from whatever plagues you? Or maybe it's sexual gratification, pornography consumption, or overeating, or overworking. Each gives a momentary sense of relief. But they're altogether powerless to redeem you from your plight, are they not? powerless. They actually work to compound it, making your state even worse, far beyond the scope of your original frame. I am Jonah. You are Jonah. And all too often, we seek escape instead of deliverance. Let's continue on to verse 6. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Here we see something really humbling. The wrong person gets it right. Right, Jonah is the prophet of the one true God, maker of heaven and earth, sovereign over all. Yet he didn't do what he should have done. He didn't run to his heavenly father. Meanwhile, the captain of the ship comes busting in up on him and says, how could you possibly be sleeping at a time like this? Get up, pray to your God that he might have mercy on us. A pagan, Gentile sailor knows 
This is a time to pray when Jonah saw escape. Let that sink in. And look at the wording that's used. He says, arise, call out. Doesn't that sound eerily similar to what God said to him in verse two? Where God said, arise, call out. The sailor just used the exact same verbs that God has spoken to Jonah. You would think that that would maybe cut through to his heart, that it would penetrate his heart, but did it? No. Two times now, Jonah has had the opportunity to seek the, the Lord. First, when the storm came, and then when the captain of the ship literally asked him, will you pray? But he did not. A quick recap of what we've seen thus far. One, God is sovereign over all. Jonah seeks escape instead of deliverance. And then we see this, the wrong person gets it right. And now we're going to see the exact same pattern repeat in these next 10 verses. We've laid a strong foundation. So I promise that we'll fly through the remaining verses. I know it's like we're 20 minutes in here and we've gone through three of our <laughs> 13 or 14 verses this morning. So let's go ahead. Let's look at verse 7. And in verse 7 we read, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Again, these seasoned sailors, these are seasoned sailors. And even they know that something weird is going on with this storm. Having exhausted all of their options, this was their last resort for determining the cause of the storm and how then they might be able to withstand it. So they cast lots. Now, this was a common practice in the ancient world for rendering an impartial, unbiased decision on important matters. We still do it to some degree today. Once the lot was cast, no one, would, no one could argue that there was nepotism or that there was politics or that there was favoritism. It could have been a coin toss, a stick draw, a rock throw, cards or dice. And at the end of verse 7, we read, so they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Here we see again that God is sovereign over all things, even gambling. Through the lot that was cast, God pointedly revealed to them on whose account the seas were raging. Then they said in verse 8, they said, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? The lot fell to Jonah, but they want to hear him say it with his own mouth, that he's to blame. And the interrogation here is in full swing. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Very interesting stuff happening here. Jonah tells them he's a Hebrew, which largely answers the questions of where he's from, what his country is, and of what people he is. But take now how he neither tells them on whose account the storm had come, nor did he tell them his occupation. He omits the fact that he is a prophet of God. And man, does this add injury to insult when he adds the line, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea. Who made the sea in dry land. If I'm one of these sailors, I'm going, you mean to tell me that this whole time you worship the God that's sovereign, that's in control over all of these things. You thought that just now that that would be helpful information to bring forth. Verse 10, let's look at their response. 
Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. These guys were already afraid being in the midst of a storm that was life-threatening. But at this news, they were exceedingly afraid. Their level of fear elevates to a much greater level because while they knew Jonah had joined them in an attempt to flee from his God, up until this point, Jonah hadn't disclosed that his God was the creator God who is sovereign, who is in control over all of his creation. Then they said to him, verse 11, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more temptuous. Maybe this time, Maybe this time Jonah will get it right. Maybe the third time is the charm. Maybe this time he'll humble himself and call out to God. But does he? Verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Again, Jonah could have called out to God. But see, we, we, here we see him seek escape for a second time. He knows God's pursuing him in the storm because of his disobedience. He says as much. But there's something holding him back. Maybe he considered a tragic death at sea still better than traveling to Nineveh and calling out to that wicked people for repentance. Maybe he was afraid to face God because he had blatantly disobeyed his word and tried to flee from his presence. Maybe, just maybe, he had forgotten the promises of God. Promises like that of Psalm 103, 8 through 14, if you want to turn there with me. Psalm 103, 8 reads this. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above, so great is the steadfast love, his love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so God shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. Maybe, just maybe, Jonah had forgotten these promises of God and considered being abandoned and adrift out to sea in the midst of a hurricane better than turning to his father after he had been disobedient. What about you, child of God? In the midst of whatever season that you're in now, have you forgotten these promises of God? If you're honest with yourself, does desolation, isolation appeal to you more than reconciliation and restoration? My friends, hold fast to these promises. Hold fast to the word of the Lord and turn to him even in this moment. Wrapping up, let's turn back to Jonah 1, verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
In spite of Jonah's request to throw him off the boat, the sailors dig in harder. I'm sure they're probably thinking, in this storm, this guy wants us to throw him overboard in this storm, there's no way he can survive. He's gone mad, he's gone crazy. And we don't want this blood on our hands. God was in the midst of the storm. The storm continued to advance on Jonah. God wasn't giving up on Jonah. God remains faithful even when you and I are faithless. And in verse 14, we see the wrong person get it right again. In light of the storm continuing to intensify, it says they, that's talking about the sailors, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They gave their allegiance. What a climax to round out this section. These sailors pray to the one true God, which Jonah should have done. They ask for mercy which Jonah should have done. They acknowledge that he is sovereign over all, as Jonah should have done. But most importantly, they feared the Lord both in thought and in deed, whereas Jonah only paid lip service to fearing the Lord. What a turn of events. All things are from God through God and to God, to the praise of his glory. God is pursuing Jonah through the storm. And though Jonah hasn't yet humbled himself, called out and turned from his sin, God is still doing something good in the midst of it all, right? Jonah and his obstinance has not yet received deliverance or even asked for it, but the sailors have. And they've received it both physically from the storm and spiritually, they cried out to the one true God. They pledged their allegiance to the one true God. They made sacrifices to the one true God. God was at work in the midst of the storm, working all things together for their good and for his glory. As we conclude our study this morning here in these verses, as I mentioned from the outset, if there's just one thing I want you to lay hold to this morning, it's this reality. It's that you can't run from God. But hear this, you can't run from God. So my question is, will you run to God? We live in a world that is completely broken. And even as a people, especially as a people, we are broken. We sin and we're sinned against. Life under the sun is riddled with much grief. But the good news of the gospel is that we don't serve a God who is dead or who is dormant, or who is distant. Rather, we serve a God whose love for us is so great that when we sin, he didn't leave us to meet the end of our sin, which is death and eternal separation from him. No, rather, he sent his only son, Jesus, into this world to live the sinless life that we failed 
to live, to carry the burdens of our sin and to bear the penalty of our sin, to ultimately die in our place as a substitute for our sin so that we could be forgiven and be reconciled to our heavenly father. And three days later, he rose from the grave and he once and for all conquered the power of sin over us. And he is presently ruling and reigning, making all things new. Now, I know that we talk about this a lot, And if we ever stop, please remove Jameson and I from being your pastors and find people who will preach the gospel every Sunday. But I think sometimes when we hit the main points of the gospel like this, we can subconsciously disassociate the man Jesus from the work he did to secure our salvation. We go, yeah, 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 yeah. I know that. Yes, Jesus died for my sin and now I can have eternal life through him. But consider Hebrews 4.15. It says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The man, Jesus, tempted in every respect as we are. Jesus came to this earth as a real man with real feelings who experienced real anxiety, real hurt, real grief, and real temptation. But guys, Jesus is our high priest. He sympathizes with our weakness. He knows how we feel in the midst of the storm because he himself has been in the midst of the storm. He too had those feelings. Listen, God isn't asking us to do anything in the midst of the storm that he himself didn't do. Just before Jesus was arrested in Matthew 26, we see him in the garden of Gethsemane. His soul is in great anguish as he knows that in spite of having never sinned, he was about to be mocked and beaten, crucified and ultimately killed for our sin. We don't even have a a category to understand that kind of anguish. Imagine being perfectly sinless and knowing that you're going to take the death that all of mankind deserved for their sin. This is the anguish. And here he tells his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, he told them, he said, my soul is very sorrowful, even to the point of death. Remain here and watch with me. And in his anguish, in his anxiety, verse 39 says that after going a little further, that Jesus fell on his face and prayed. And as he prayed, the torment within him literally causes him to sweat blood. But instead of running, instead of seeking escape, he turns to the Father, and this is what he prays. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In spite of all the odds stacked against him, Jesus runs to the Father, asking that if, there be, if it be possible, there be another way, but if not, he would do as the Father willed, believing that the Father would be there with him in the midst of the storm. And because of Jesus' perseverance, because he submitted to the will of the Father, because he nailed our sin to the cross, we now may have redemption. If you place your faith in Jesus, you have this redemption. Jesus is your Savior. In Hebrews 6, 19 through 20 says, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain 
where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We not only have a savior, but we have an advocate working on our midst of the storm. I don't know what you're going through. I don't, but what I do know is that it's not outside of God's control. What I do know is that he's in the midst of the mess with you at this present moment. You don't have to seek momentary escape because your rescue is on the way. And in the waiting, your advocate Jesus pleads for you. He pleads for you. Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he says, come to me, all who weary and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is what he has done. We don't have to believe the lies that he's going to cast us out. We don't have to hold on to the shame. He tells us that his heart towards the sinner is gentle and lowly. In the only place in all of scripture that Jesus actually speaks about his own heart, he says, I am gentle and lowly. Will you come to him? Will you surrender to him in this moment? May we let this falling away, this backsliding of Jonah be a lesson to us. It all stems from two things. One, forsaking God's word. And two, fleeing from God's presence. And it's a curse that's as old as the garden. How did sin enter the world? Adam and Eve rejected God's word to not eat from the fruit of the tree. And then they tried to flee his presence, as we discussed earlier. But Jesus came to reverse this curse so in the midst of the storm, in the face of any temptation to escape, will you hold fast to the word of God? Will you hold fast to the promises of God? And will you seek his presence continually? My friends, you can't run from God, so will you please run to God? Run to your heavenly father. Hold firm to the promises of his word. Have confidence that at the center of every storm, he is there with you. He has not forsaken you. He is working in this moment, making all things new, working all things for his glory, working all things for your good. Will you call out to him? Let's pray. God, you are so good. And you are so loving. And you are so powerful. And God, throughout your word, you clearly established what the penalty for our sin was. It was death. But God, we thank you that because of your great love, just like the love that you have for Jonah, that you pursued us. God, that you didn't leave us to meet our death and eternal damnation to hell but that you would send Jesus to become our sin, to be our substitute, that we could become his righteousness. God, you've been so good.
good to us. Lord, and if there's any here this morning who haven't placed their faith in you, God, if there's any here who feel too cast down in their shame, too dirty, God, would you reveal to them that they're exactly who you came to this earth for? Jesus, you didn't come to this earth for good little boys and girls who practiced the law, but for wretched and wayward sinners on a fast track to hell. You bore their sin. You covered their sacrifice. Lord, we have this hope and this assurance that if we but believe on you in this moment, we stand as holy and blameless. As far as the east is from the west, so he removes our transgressions. God, thank you. Thank you for this. And God, may this then propel us in the face of any storm we encounter today, this week. God, we hold fast to the reality that we can't run from you, but may we have confidence in the fact that you are sovereign and that we can run to you, knowing that there's nothing that's presently touching us that is outside of your control. God, you're working. You're making all things good. If it's not good yet, you're not finished yet. Let us rest in this reality. God, we surrender. Have your way in us. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.